0: The topic that I have been assigned is Getting Conversion Right, How a Biblical Understanding of Repentance and Faith Affects the Way We Pastor. Getting Conversion Right, How a Biblical Understanding of Repentance and Faith Affects the Way We Pastor. The topic of conversion is one of urgent importance. We know this instinctively, do we not? You don't need to hear from me this morning to spell out for us the many different ways getting conversion right is important. We know it instinctively. We as parents know it instinctively as we seek to shepherd our children towards Christ. And we as grandparents, as we seek to shepherd our grandchildren towards the Lord Jesus Christ in a saving relationship with Him. As pastors, we feel that soberly, do we not? We understand that we have been given charge over the souls of people, not just personalities, not just givers, not just servants, not just attenders, but souls that we are called to shepherd. And that's responsibility that we do well to take earnestly as we seek to shepherd our people towards a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do so as those who will give an account for those souls, do we not? So we understand instinctively as parents and as pastors how important it is to get conversion right. We understand it as well as pastors as we think not just at the individual level, but at the corporate congregational level. As we shepherd the flock of God, we understand that the church is more than individual parts, but there's the sum total of the people of God congregated together in a covenanted community, a covenantal community together. And to faithfully steward that flock is to not just shepherd them individually, but to monitor them collectively that collective witness that we project into a community, that collective stimulation on to, to good works and Christian deeds, that collective sum total of our corporate worship together. And so as we shepherd the flock of God in one particular place, as pastors and elders, we do so understanding that how we speak and teach and preach conversion matters for that collective witness. But I always think more broadly when we think of this category because of my role here and as one who serves Southern Baptist. Many of us in the room, it looked like most of us in the room are serving in a Southern Baptist context, but my comments here apply beyond the SBC to virtually every evangelical denomination. Our fellowship of churches has a collective witness as well. In my own denominational context, the Southern Baptist Convention, we have more than 14 million members on the rolls of our churches, but around 5 to 6 million individuals who are actually engaged in an active way in the life of a local church Sunday to Sunday. Brothers and sisters, that ought not be the case. Membership matters and getting conversion right as the doorway into church membership matters. In many ways, as Southern Baptists, we have reaped what we have sown decade after decade of, unfortunately, shallow preaching and low membership standards has populated our churches, church after church, with roles that are inflated, that do not reflect the actual spiritual reality taking place in that location. Getting conversion right matters. It matters as parents, it matters as pastors, it matters in our congregation, and it matters in our broader fellowship of churches, getting conversion right. And I'm convinced you can draw a direct line from the preaching and teaching on repentance and faith, that line on to conversion being right, that line on to baptism into the local church, and to church membership, being faithful and an accurate reality, an accurate depiction of what's taking place spiritually and the life of that congregation. And then beyond that line, that line beyond, to the fellowship of churches in a denomination. So we're thinking this morning about conversion, about repentance and faith. The Baptist Faith and Message speaks to these matters and does so in a very helpful way. It writes, Regeneration, or the new birth... "...is a work of God's grace whereby believers become new creatures in Christ Jesus. It is a change of heart brought by the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin to which the sinner responds in repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace." Repentance, it says, is a genuine turning from sin toward God. Faith is the acceptance of Jesus Christ and commitment of the entire personality to Him as Lord and Savior. It's my joy this morning to help us think through these realities with particular emphasis on the word repentance, on the topic of repentance, repentance, on the practice of repentance. Now, of course, as we think of conversion... Uh, we cannot do so without thinking together about that great paradox of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And you will hear that thematically throughout the day today and tomorrow. G.I. Packard, his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, now written many decades ago, helpfully taught us, and now several generations of evangelicals, this delicate beauty, this sweet tension of God's sovereignty and of man's responsibility in salvation. Packer spoke of the paradox or the antinomy. This, this divine tension that God calls upon all men everywhere to repent and to believe, but to do so, there must be the work of the Spirit in our hearts, enabling, enticing us to so proceed. The Bible teaches us that regeneration precedes repentance and faith, yet does not occur ultimately without repentance and faith. That is to say, there aren't people walking around who have been regenerated, but are yet to repent and to believe. It's in the sweet mystery of God. It's a dynamic tension that God presents to us in Scripture. And it's one that we know experimentally, all who've been converted, as we sense the the wooing of the Spirit in our heart and drawing us to Christ and conviction of sin taking place. And then one day, humanly, we repented of our sins and placed our faith in Jesus Christ. And we're converted for the glory of God. This is conversion, repentance and faith. This is the beautiful tension in Scripture of God's work in our heart and our responsibility to repent and to believe. Now, for this morning, I want to spend the bulk of my time, the bulk of our consideration together on that topic of repentance. Not that repentance is more important than faith, but because I believe in our generation, we have fundamentally forgotten the biblical concept of repentance. I don't hear it preached from pulpits much. I don't hear it taught in Bible classes much. There aren't many best-selling books out these days on repentance. There aren't many workshops on repentance, yet it is an essential spiritual practice for any and every healthy believer. It is an essential act for anyone who would be made right with Christ through the gospel. I submit to you this morning that we we forget repentance at our own peril. To preach repentance is to preach life. To express repentance is to experience joy. To practice repentance is to practice this essential act of the Christian life. And so, brothers and sisters, this morning I say to us, if repentance is not an ongoing act of your Christian life, something is amiss. Brother preachers, I say to you this morning, if repentance is not a central mark of your pulpit ministry, something is amiss. And I think that we can all agree indeed, if we have ears to hear and if we are exposed very much to preaching in the main, in the evangelical world, that something is amiss. The note of repentance is not being struck. Now, I want this morning to think in three units of thought together. The first is repentance defined, and then we'll look in New Testament terms at repentance described, and then we'll look thirdly at one particular passage in the New Testament and see repentance depicted. Let's begin by defining repentance together. And to do that, I want to first point us to a few counterfeits of repentance that are common the first counterfeit of repentance now that uh, has been around for centuries is that word penance penance of course when I say that word we think of the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation that took place in that context but the word penance penance is the first counterfeit of repentance 1517, a 33 year old Augustinian monk made his way to the chapel church, at Wittenberg, to post his 95 Theses, not a declaration of division, but a collection of theological points he wanted to debate. The backdrop was that of corruption, especially around the selling of indulgences, by the way, which is, it was a remarkably efficient fundraising scheme. <laughs> the behest of Pope Leo X, to raise funds to build St. Peter's. Tetzel scoured the country, selling indulgences, as you know, with the famous jingle, as soon as the coin in the coffer springs, the soul from Purgatory springs. That and many other false beliefs and corrupt practices motivated this young man at the age of 33 to present these theses. The first thesis of the 95 was this. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he meant that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. Luther committed the crime of looking beyond the Latin Vulgate to Erasmus' translation of the Greek New Testament and in so doing, rediscovered repentance. Repentance. Repentance not as an outward act or payment, but an inward change, an inward shift in disposition to a way of life for the believer. Penance still happens these days. It still happens in evangelical circles, of course, not under that, that, that title or with that nomenclature, but this sense of if I, if I give this or if I do this on occasion it will make right all of my many wrongs. Counterfeit number one is penance. Counterfeit number two is regret. To regret is to, to feel sadness or disappointment over what that sin has cost you. Something that has happened or has been done, especially a loss or a missed opportunity. Pastor X commits some scandalous sin. He loses his pastor, he loses his family. He may feel regret over that without experiencing repentance. It often shows up like this. It's like overeating at Thanksgiving. You push your way, yourself away from the table. And you say to yourself, I never want to eat again. You're not repentant, you're stuffed. You're not repentant, you're satiated. You have had all you wanted and then some, and so you push yourself away momentarily. No more for now. Not no more forever. Regret. Third counterfeit is the word remorse. If regret is feeling disappointed over what sin has cost you, remorse is feeling guilt over what your sin has cost someone else. Remorse is feeling guilt over what sin has cost your family, or your church, or your friends, or some other loved one. Judas sends remorse, but it was not repentance unto salvation. Politicians who find themselves in scandal often feel remorse, but it's usually not repentance unto salvation. Penance, regret, remorse. There's a fourth counterfeit, and that is the word reform. Reform is an outward behavior modification without inward change. Outward behavior modification without inward change. And in that sense, that's what the Pharisees were good at, is it not? They had perfected the art of behavior modification, but were dead on the inside. That shows up in evangelical churches as well, does it not? We want our people to be cleaner, to be better, to be milder in their manners, tamer with their tongue, more gentle in their interactions with one another. Shows up in our parenting so often, they're our young children, right? We we don't want them to lie. We don't want them to throw a fit. We don't want them to be disruptive in their behavior. For not careful, we can incentivize reform, but not repentance. Repentance, having been misunderstood for centuries, misunderstood today. When we think of the New Testament, there are three words for repentance that shows up that, that show up in the New Testament. The first word is the word epistrepho. It means to turn or to turn back. It's what we see in places like 1 Thessalonians 1.9 where Paul commends those believers there to turn, because they turned from idols to God. So it's this, it means to turn or to turn back. The second word, which is rare in the New Testament, is the word Metemelome. It conveys the idea of an inner regret that may or may not lead to a turning to God. So an inward stirring, perhaps an inward regret, perhaps an inward distraughtness that may or may not lead to an actual turning to God. It's a third word more commonly used, and the one we're more commonly familiar with, and that is the word metanoiae. It refers to a change of the inner person, especially the mind, but also in the affections, and it leads to a change in action. That's the picture we see taking place in for instance, in Jonathan Edwards' writing in the Religious Affections, when he writes on repentance, he speaks to this change of mind that also is a change of heart or a change of the affections that gets external in our actions as well. So we can describe biblical repentance as in or define biblical repentance as an inward change of mind with a change of desire and affections that leads to a change of action. It begins inner but it gets outward. It's not just an inner ought to, but it's also an inner want to. That's our word, repentance. As an interesting footnote, has it ever occurred to you that the word penitentiary derived from these same roots? The penal system, to be put in the penitentiary, historically meant not just to be punished, but to hopefully be broken. So that when one is released, one will not go back to that same pattern of criminal behavior? So that is repentance defined. Unit of thought number two, repentance described. Think with me in broad New Testament terms about how we see repentance showing up in the New Testament. First, a call for repentance characterizes New Testament preaching. Matthew 3, 2 and 3, John the Baptist preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he did so, we are told, with, with the voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. Luke thirteen three, Jesus says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In Luke 24, in Luke's recounting of Jesus' post-resurrection appearance to His disciples, our Lord explained the Scriptures to them and, and told them that they were to preach repentance and forgiveness. At Pentecost, Acts 2, Peter, preach, repent, and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. similarly again in Acts 3, in Acts seventeen thirty, Paul in Athens declared that God now calls all men everywhere to repent. Acts twenty verse twenty one, Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders, he says, "I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ." Before King Agrippa in Acts 26, Paul summarized and defended his ministry as one of preaching people should repent and turn to God and perform deeds in keeping with repentance. Do you want to preach like the apostles? Preach repentance. Do you want to minister like Christ? Point people to repentance. Secondly, from the New Testament, we learn that God's desire for our repentance is an expression of love, not judgment. Romans 2.4 tells us that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that the Lord is patient, desiring all to, to come to repentance. And so for us to experience the grace of God, to enter into that room, we have to walk through the doorway of repentance. And God staying His judgment over this cosmos and over this earth, and perhaps over your life personally, is a temporary stay, making space and time for you to repent, for us to repent for our churches to repent, for our nation to repent. Third, from the New Testament we learn that though we are commanded to repent, it is a gift of God. 2 Timothy 2.25 makes clear that God has to grant repentance. Again, in the mystery of God, He grants that which He commands. He enables us to do what He calls us to do. But this should behoove us to remember that when we are stirred to repentance, when we feel the weight and conviction of our sin, to throw ourselves on the mercy of God, then not presuming such a stirring will come again. We are commanded to repent. It is a gift of God. Fourth, in the New Testament, we learn that Jesus came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke chapter 5, verse 32. The greater the the sin, the sweeter the repentance. Fifth, we learn from the New Testament that not every expression of repentance is authentic repentance. Remember what Paul writes to the church at Corinth after that stinging letter rebuke in the first letter that we have? He follows that up with the second letter that we have, and he unpacks for these believers his gratitude that the grace of God reached them, and they had expressed repentance. In chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, he writes this, "'For though I caused you sorrow by my letter,' I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter calls you sorrow, but only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Again, mere sorrow may be just a sign of counterfeit repentance. Paul says, I, I'm grateful not that you felt badly about your behavior, not that you were sorrowful over your sin, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. In so doing, that you may not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. I have never met a man who regretted truly repenting. The scriptural pattern is clear. Preaching repentance is essential to New Testament preaching. God's desire for our repentance is an expression of love. Though we are commanded to repent, it is a gift of God. Jesus came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And not every expression of repentance is authentic repentance. But as we see Paul saying here to the believers at Corinth, that repentance that is deep, built upon a true transformative sorrow that moves one to the mercy of Christ, that sort of repentance always comes without regret. So we've seen repentance defined. We've seen the repentance described in the New Testament. Now I want to spend the bulk of our time looking at repentance depicted. Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Luke chapter 19. The Gospel of Luke chapter 19, and in these verses, we see the story of a man, a man who demonstrates repentance, the type of repentance we have just reviewed together. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, is the picture of of this man, Zacchaeus. We find ourselves, an interesting point in the Gospel of Luke, where Luke is speaking candidly about money, about poverty, about the Pharisees, those who were self-righteous, about the publican, those who were known to be wicked. Immediately preceding our verses, we see where, where Jesus has this great encounter with the rich young ruler, this man who appears to be ready for conversion, but he has an idol. He doesn't repent. Then we see again a man impoverished, Bartimaeus. These are verses immediately before chapter 19 where he's a beggar but he is saved. Notice chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. He entered Jericho, Jesus, and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him. For he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he heard and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So we enter this story, and Jesus is passing through with his disciples, and they enter Jericho, and an interesting, in fact, a shocking exchange takes place. We know something of this city of Jericho, it made, Famous in the Old Testament, right? East of Jerusalem between the holy city and the, the River Jordan. Jericho in the ancient world was a city that was attractive, a city of culture, even a city of prosperity. Josephus referred to to, to Jericho as a as a little a little paradise. If you lived in the ancient world, you might be tempted by a timeshare in Jericho. So they're there, and and Jericho, along with Jerusalem and Capernaum, were were leading revenue centers in the ancient world. And so that meant if you were a tax collector, you wanted your assignment to be Jericho. Where there was a lot of money, there was a potential for a lot of taxes. Where there was a potential for a lot of taxes, there was the guarantee of garnering great wealth. So Zacchaeus is the tax collector in the city of Jericho, and and he's there again due to his wealth. He's there to collect wealth in this revenue center. And verse 1 tells us that, that Jesus is passing through, and there was this man by the name of Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. This is Luke's sixth reference and his final reference to tax collectors in his gospel. He introduced us first to the subspecies in chapter 5 where we see Levi, known to us as Matthew. Matthew and Zacchaeus are the only two tax collectors named in the New Testament. But in chapter 3, in chapter 7, in chapter 15, and then chapter 18, Luke keeps weaving through these these encounters, these recognitions, these these illustrations of tax collectors throughout his gospel. And here we come to this final presentation, and we meet this man, Zacchaeus. And he's in Jericho, and he is a chief tax collector, the only so designation in the New Testament. Now, to be a tax collector itself communicated certain things. It communicated you likely were wealthy, you likely were corrupt, you likely were hated, and so to be the chief tax collector, you can accentuate all of those realities. So we see then in verse three that Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. He's looking along. He's wanting to see Jesus. But he's unable because there's a crowd, for he was small in stature. So this is this man, Zacchaeus. What do we know about him? No, number one, he's rich. He's rich by profession. Verse 2 tells us, matter of factly though, straightforwardly, he was rich. So he's rich. There We also know that he was corrupt by his vocation. We also know that he was hated because of his vocation. We also know that he was short, and who knows, perhaps this this added to the rub here amongst his fellow man. He's He's perhaps the smallest guy in town and the richest guy in town and the most corrupt guy in town, and that combination made him perhaps the most despised guy in town. We also know that he seems to be empty. There seems to be some sort of spiritual stirring within him. Perhaps the Spirit is working within him, but but something is taking place here because he hears this man is coming and he's heard of Jesus. He's heard of his teaching. He's heard of his signs. He's heard of his miracles. And so he's wanting to see what's taking place. And he goes to to see Jesus, but this crowd is thick and he's small in stature. So verse four tells us he has to go up ahead and climb a tree. He's empty. He's curious. He's determined. He's courageous. He elbows his way through this crowd that doesn't like him. He goes to find a place to look, and his determination takes courage, and he goes and climbs up this tree. And we might even say that he's seeking in a biblical sense. It's interesting how the Spirit works, is it not? It's interesting how money works in the New Testament, is it not? For some, like the rich young ruler, it was this great impediment... To Christ. But for Zacchaeus, it seems to be the opposite. Zacchaeus has everything the world has to offer, and he realizes that has not satisfied his soul. Because it can't. Zacchaeus has all the world has to offer. He's enjoyed all the vanities of life. But he's left empty. So notice verse 4. He scampers ahead, climbs up in this tree, the sycamore tree, a tree easy to climb with long, low-hanging branches to the ground. He shimmies up this tree, and he's there, and he's looking, and he's somewhat incognito, but Jesus sees him nonetheless. Jesus passes by, verse 5, Jesus comes to the place. He looks up, and he says, as I kiss... Hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Now, who knows what is going on in the mind and heart of Zacchaeus at this point? Perhaps Zacchaeus has heard about the conversion of Matthew. Perhaps Zacchaeus has heard about how this other tax collector's life was changed, and he met the master, now he was a disciple following Jesus. We don't know. But we know that Zacchaeus is there, perched on this lamb, looking down. Jesus comes by, Jesus calls him by name, and he issues imperatives. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down. Today I'm going to stay at your house. A shocking declaration. Rabbis don't stay in the house of sinners. The religiously accomplished. Don't stay at the home of the the religiously outcast. That's how Jesus is, is it not? Jesus has affection on this man. Jesus loves this man. Jesus seeks this man. Why Zacchaeus? Well, because Zacchaeus is wealthy, and the, the first Baptist church of Jericho could use a good tither. Zacchaeus has all this promise. Clearly, Jesus saw some spiritual potential in him. No. Jesus doesn't need his money. Zacchaeus gives no evidence of spiritual potential. He's not already kind of morally clean, and we just need to, just need to catechize him a little bit, and he'll be ready to go. No. Zacchaeus is spiritually busted. Yes, materially wealthy, but spiritually busted. And Jesus sees him, and Zacchaeus is an object lesson for the type of ministry Jesus engaged in, for Jesus comes along and he inverts the religious topography. He takes the first century Jewish system based on merit and works and law-keeping and outward appearance and self-righteousness and all the rest, and he tumps those tables over, so to speak. Jesus sees a sinner who's deep in sin. Jesus sees a man who's lonely because his community hates him. Jesus sees a man who is empty because he cannot be and has not been satisfied by the things of this world. Jesus sees him and calls him to himself. That's the way Jesus works. To the hard-hearted, he brings the law. To the religiously accomplished, he brings words of prophetic rebuke. To the morally upright, he reveals how sinful they truly are. But to the lowly, the broken, the spiritually needy, he comes offering the healing grace of the gospel. A couple years back, I was reading a story on the apple. We all know Apple, not the fruit, the corporation. And uh, the story caught my eye because they're talking about they're, they're, we're seeking to expand their, their plant, their, their corporate headquarters. And like like often happens, the company had grown a ton the past couple of decades, and then they're they're adding contiguous property, adding contiguous property to to expand. And you know you don't put out a new an, an advertisement in the newspaper saying we're looking. Apple is looking to expand its property. Would anyone like to sell any of their acres? Right. That's how that's how you drive up the price. So you, they selectively, quietly, you know, through brokers try to try to you know acquire property contiguous to them. Well, anyway, they had managed to acquire like all the property they wanted, except for this one house that was like like the hole in the donut. This one house was in the middle of the property that they wanted to acquire. And this couple, they weren't trying to be difficult. They just didn't want to sell their house. They weren't trying to hold out for top dollar. They just loved their little home. It was a quaint home. This was the Apple uh, headquarters, headquartered in North Carolina. Well, Apple needed this property. Well, 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 this this little this little house, the family had built it for um, for just a a, a for just um, the, the number was sixty thousand dollars in the seventies. Well, Apple began to want to buy it. Wanted to buy it. Wanted to buy it. They made offer, made offer, made offer. Well, in the final analysis, Apple wound up buying the home for one point seven million dollars. Not because there was anything within the value of that home itself to merit that valuation, of course not, but because Apple valued that home. Apple wanted that home and it busted any human evaluation of worth. That's sort of what we see Jesus doing, in the sinner. Jesus places a value on the soul of the sinner that shatters any human, external, contemporary religious evaluation of what this little tax collector ought to be spiritually worth. Now notice what takes place. And here I believe we see in the New Testament one of the most beautiful pictures of repentance. Jesus calls him down. He says, you come down. And then Zacchaeus begins to respond. And in so doing, again, we get a picture of what this change of heart and change of mind and change of life looks like. And it's a dramatic picture, yes. Because of the depths of Zacchaeus' sin, the, the corruption of his business practices, the way he had taken advantage of his fellow man. But all of that meant the, the price, so to speak, to follow Jesus. It's more acute for him. Notice how Jesus works in his life. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Notice Zacchaeus' response. He sat on the branch. He broke out a T-shirt. He listed on the left side the pros, the right side the cons of following Jesus. No. He hurried and came down and received him gladly. What do we see taking place here? First of all, this repentance is quick repentance. It's quick repentance. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down. Verse 6, he hurried and came down. I will tell you emphatically, delaying repentance is never a good move. Delayed repentance, delaying repentance, in so doing, you might be inviting the judgment of God. Zacchaeus demonstrates quick repentance. Also, he demonstrates public repentance. This is not like an engagement with Nicodemus at night. This is the most hated guy in town, whom everyone knew was corrupt, having this exchange with the Messiah in front of the town, and in so doing, everyone knows that if this is a real reaction, a real response, this public repentance will have what? Real consequences. I'm from the city of Mobile, Alabama, and uh, I, I've been nostalgic the last several days because a dear friend of of mine who who discipled me and my wife, his wife, my wife, and we were uh, engaged and newlyweds, and, and just a fantastic couple. Um, the, the 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 gentleman named Ed Lacey, uh, he went to be with the Lord a couple of days ago after a after a, a long bout with COVID. Well, I remember those days back, back in the late 90s when, when I had just become a believer in mid-90s and late 90s and was being discipled by him, and, and just we saw God do some really incredible things. One of the things we saw take place was there was another guy in our Bible study, and, and Ed led a, a Bible study at 5.30 a.m. on every Friday morning, and looking back, it was nothing but an act of God that got me. there. As a college student at 5.30 every Friday morning. But I was there, and a number of other men were there. And one of the men that would come was a guy named Richard Burton. And Richard then um, was a, a guy in his kind of late 30s, and Richard had been dramatically converted. And he had lived a life um, indulging in the things of the world, so much so he, he owned a nightclub named Pandora's Box, And everything that you can imagine went on in Pandora's box, like went on in Pandora's box. Well, Richard was not a particularly sophisticated guy. Comes a believer, heart on fire for the Lord. What does he do? He goes and burns down his nightclub. (laughs) Not to collect insurance, just because like this whole place is so wicked and I've been orchestrating debauchery and I don't want want to sell it to someone else to carry it on. We're just going to go burn the place down. Now, you might say that was a foolish act, and perhaps it was. But there was no misunderstanding about what had taken place in the life of Richard Burton. There was no confusion over the seriousness of his commitment to Christ. There was no questioning whether or not he was ready to move forward under a new master and follow new instructions in the Word of God and please a new Savior. No ambiguity about any of that. Quick repentance... Zacchaeus here again. This is public repentance. Notice also, this is happy repentance. He hurries. He comes down. He received Jesus gladly. This is not a man burdened because he just figured out he's got. He lost his source of income. This is a man overjoyed because he's realizing the weight of that sin that has been accumulating for many years and through many abuses is being lifted. It's quick repentance, it's public repentance, it's happy repentance. Notice it's unqualified repentance. Verse seven says, When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Jesus is going to be with a sinner. Verse 8. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. What is going on here? What is going on here? Zacchaeus is erring the side Of restitution. The Old Testament, in places like Leviticus 6 and Numbers 5 and Exodus 22, made clear what the formal expectations for restitution were. And Zacchaeus here, he outstrips every Old Testament expectation of restitution. In other words, his fingers aren't crossed. He's not shuffling his feet. He's not working through mental contingencies if this thing of following Christ doesn't quite pan out as we had hoped. No, he's just making it right. This is not tit for tat over technically what he did wrong or didn't do wrong and they're in hyper-negotiation and everyone is a private contract and arbitration and we're working it through, working it through. He's just saying... I have been changed, pushes his chips in and says, let's just make it right in spades. Brothers and sisters, that is a beautiful, notice I said beautiful picture of repentance. You might be thinking this is a severe picture of repentance. This is an aggressive picture of repentance. This is an over-the-top picture of repentance. And maybe it is all of those things, but it is no less beautiful. Because we see the heart of a person so changed by his encounter with Christ that there's been a dramatic U-turn, a dramatic U-turn, and in so doing, Zacchaeus experiencing the love of our Lord in his life. I'll tell you what, I, I don't hear much preaching that calls for repentance like this. Much of preaching today sounds like a negotiation. It sounds like a, 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 a heightened solicitation to follow Christ based upon the good things that will happen if you do. And yes, good things will happen if you do. I uh, share the story to our chapel audience here last semester. But uh, a few years back, I was um, watching my daughters, who then were junior high girls, playing junior high girls basketball. And junior high girls basketball does not sound that intense. But if it's your daughters playing, it can be pretty intense. And I was there, we were there, and our girls were playing, and uh, the season was at the end, it was like the end of the season tournament. And so this is high stakes, right? You, know, you want to win the tournament. And we're there, and my wife and I are there, and we're in this little Christian school gym, and it's like an, a Thursday afternoon game. So there's like nobody there watching it except a few you know, committed parents. And uh, our daughters are playing, and I'm sitting up the top row, of my wife, so we can kind of lean back against the wall up there, watching it. And, and I'm I'm not a yeller at games, I'm not, I'm just you know, usually a fan and occasionally say a word or two. I'm not, I'm not some irate fan up there. But uh, but anyway, watching the game, watching the game. And 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 so the game is uh we we're, we're deep in the second quarter. And the fouls, the referees have caught eight fouls on our team, two fouls on the other team. It became quite clear to me that the Christian thing to do was to help these guys out. And uh, uh, these refs clearly needed assistance. And uh, they clearly needed assistance. I mean, they they, they were struggling. They were not having a good day at all. They were struggling. And so it it was a Christian thing to do to help them out. So we're there. Well, anyway, they called the eighth foul. It happened to be my daughter, which, which kind of added insult to injury. And they there watching it. And uh, it's that quiet moment when, like, right before a little girl's about to shoot a free throw, and, like, no one in the gym is saying anything. And so I, I wasn't mad. I didn't yell. I just said with the, a voice that, that, you know, projected a little bit. I said, uh, I said, the fouls are eight to two. Let's even it up refs. Well, like, every head of the gym turns and looks at me. You know, my wife elbows me. I cannot believe you just yelled. I say I didn't yell. I just made a public observation. (laughs) That's all I did. I did not yell. I just made a public observation. And and, uh, I, I, in this moment, want to make a public observation. I'm not angry. I'm not yelling. But my public observation is that the vast majority of evangelical preachers are failing our congregations by not preaching repentance. And in so doing, we are selling them short on what God would do in their lives. And in so doing, we're selling our churches short as to what they can experience. Because this I know from one who has had to repent, who's gotten to repent 10,000 times, if not more. To repent is a sweet thing. To repent is life giving, to repent is joy giving. To repent is restorative to the Lord and often one with another. To repent is the way of Christ. And we will never have congregations full of people who are actually converted until we have people who have actually repented and been converted. And it's not likely we will have people who have actually repented and truly been converted unless from our pulpits we point them biblically to what it means to repent. Repentance is an essential word, it is a sweet word, it is a necessary word, it is a life giving word. And without repentance, there is no conversion. Without repentance, corporately, there is no revival. And people who want to see revival in our generation, as I do, should be the first to acknowledge the revival doesn't begin with the top-blowing off, with a a static activity. It begins with the the bottom falling out and holy mourning and repentance. In this passage, 18 and 19, we see two individuals... Who are remarkably similar yet dissimilar. They both are wealthy, the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus. The rich young ruler evidently is outwardly religious and upright. Zacchaeus is outwardly a skunk. But they both have two different dramatic encounters with Jesus. The rich young ruler goes away lost, but this little guy, Zacchaeus, what happened? I'll tell you what happened. The camel just went through the eye of the needle. Notice what Jesus says to button this up. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jews are preoccupied, of course, with who was the true children of Israel. Who were the true sons of Abraham? And Jesus is saying, salvation has come to this man's house. He is a true son of Abraham. And by the way, the son of man, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. There is no conversion without repentance and faith. And repentance, I believe, is the missing ingredient from the vast majority of evangelical pulpits today. Do you know what parts of the world, Eastern Europe, for instance, Christians aren't called Christians. They're called repenters. What a wonderful designation that would be. What a glorious retrieval that would be if in our churches and in our homes and our lives we were easily identified as those people who repent. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to gather with brothers and sisters to think about repentance, to think about conversion. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be faithful as those who administer the word of God, calling people to repentance and demonstrating repentance in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.